0: November 2006, a man named Abraham Shakespeare hit the jackpot in the Florida lotto. His good heart led him to give and loan away a large amount of his winnings. When a woman named Dee Dee Moore convinced him to sign his assets over to her to protect them from vultures, things went from bad to worse. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Crimelines. Welcome back to the show. Before we get started, I actually have to talk about last week's episode for a minute. We're going to talk about the Jack family again, because I have both a correction and an update. A listener named Jerry reached out to me to clear up a misconception I had, and I really appreciate this. I had referred to the 60s scoop in Canada in relation to the residential schools, But this was actually something separate, kind of related, but not the same thing as the residential schools. The 60s scoop was when children were removed from their homes and put up for adoption. And some of these adoptions were international. The reason for removal was simply because they were indigenous This is what we heard about in the podcast Finding Cleo, which is probably top five podcast for me. In that case, her family all knew she was adopted somewhere in the U.S. You also get to hear from her siblings who were also removed from the home and adopted out. And you also hear from some of the adoptive parents and they tell you how the kids were basically being marketed to them for adoption. It's super sad story. I'll just tell you that now. But it's really, really fascinating. Now, Indigenous children were placed in residential schools by force. It wasn't as though they were adopted out like they were in the 60s scoop. And here's something Jerry said that I did not know at all. A large number Of children who went to residential schools, possibly as many as half, never returned home. They either died or went missing. And you have to wonder if some were actually adopted out without the parents knowing. I started digging into some of the stats here about deaths at the residential schools, and they don't actually know how many there were. Definitely in the thousands, but they don't know because the number was so high, the government stopped tracking. Indian Country Today reported that around 1920, the chief medical examiner at the Indian Affairs Department in Canada was actually fired because he flagged the higher than normal mortality rate at the schools. They literally fired someone for pointing out that kids were dying at an alarming rate. I want to thank Jerry for the added information and the clarification. So that's the correction on last week's episode. The update is that on Wednesday, July 24th, 2019, So less than 24 hours after I released the episode, a news article appeared. The RCMP was searching in British Columbia that day for evidence of the Jack family. Doreen's sister was brought to the site by the RCMP while they searched. The RCMP has been keeping Marlene in the loop with this, as well as other family members and community members. They're not saying anything to the media about what led them to that specific site. And it sounds like this is phase one of multiple searches. But if you remember all the way back to last week, Marlene was afraid she would be cut off from information through the RCMP if she spoke out too much. And it seems that is not happening, thankfully. I'll keep you all updated as more information about the search comes out. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Crimelines Podcast because I'll post there. But, you know, if there is a major break, I'm definitely going to announce it on the show for all of you who don't do social media. So tonight's case, as you saw from the title, is part one of two. I honestly had no idea this episode would be this long, and I don't think the researcher who worked on this, Haley, who worked very hard on this episode, thought it was going to be this long either. So I do want to thank Haley for all of her hard work on this. This case on the surface looked straightforward enough. When I realized how long it was going to be, I thought, I'll just stay on schedule. I'll give you guys an hour and a half, two hour episode. No big deal. The reason I'm doing a two parter is for the simple reason that I ran out of time writing this case. I am recording right now at noon on Saturday, and this needs to be posted tonight on Patreon. So I'm down to the wire and I just could not get it done. I didn't want to skip the week entirely and make you wait all the way to next week. So it's a two parter. If you prefer to just have one long episode, Just save this one and listen to it next week. I will be trying to get the second part up on Patreon and Himalaya Plus as early as possible next week. I don't think you're going to have to wait a full week if you're on Patreon or Himalaya Plus. Let's see how fast I can write on Monday. So, tonight's episode is about a man who won big in the lottery and then lost his life. We are talking about Abraham Lee Shakespeare. Abraham was born in April 1966 in Sebring, Florida. He grew up in Lakeland and Lake Wales. So we are talking central Florida between Orlando and Tampa. He was the youngest of his mom, Elizabeth's four children. And I'm under the impression there were some step siblings out there as well. Now, Abraham's life was what you would expect of an impoverished kid in the 60s and 70s. He never really ventured out of the area he was born in. He dropped out of school in the seventh grade, but his education wasn't a seventh grade education. He had not yet learned to read or write fluently. A lot of times when we say someone is illiterate, we mean they're functionally illiterate. They can read and write on a very basic level, but not well enough to further their career, or to be completely independent. I mean, they can live on their own and hold down a job, but things like getting a driver's license is incredibly difficult. Even if they take the oral test, it's difficult to study a manual you can't read. Someone who's functionally illiterate would have trouble following written instructions for products they buy and would need someone to help them. And today, with written communication in texting and email being a part of most jobs, this really limits opportunity. But according to Abraham's family, he was illiterate by a much stricter definition of the word. His family has said he could sign his own name, and that was about it. He would very occasionally use text messaging later as he gets older, and this will become important later, but his text messages, you had to kind of decode them. They weren't words and sentences put together in what we would consider writing. A seventh grader like Abraham was when he left school should still be able to read, even if we're talking a functionally illiterate level, not a strict illiterate level. I'm under the impression, based on things his family and friends have said about him, that he may have had an intellectual disability. And of course, he's going to school before mandated special education. So poor, learning disabled, major, major risk factors for illiteracy. After dropping out of school, Abraham got a job working in citrus fields, which is plentiful work in central Florida. And reading and writing was not needed. But it wasn't that long after he dropped out of school that he was convicted of theft. So from about 13 to 18, he was at a reform school, and the school didn't really do a lot for him. He finished it no more proficient at reading and writing than when he went in. I know I may sound like I'm harping on this literacy thing, But 85% of teen inmates in juvenile centers today in the U.S. are functionally illiterate. 85%. The link between poverty, literacy, and crime is a major social issue. So, of course, I'm harping on it. It's who I am. But more specific to this case, Abraham's illiteracy will come up again. And it's important that we're clear on it. Anyway, Abraham moved in with his father at the age of 18 when he was released from the reform school. He mostly took odd jobs as they came up. He was a big guy, 6'5", 190 pounds. So he did a lot of manual labor jobs. In 2001, when Abraham was 35 years old, he had a son named Moses. He and Moses' mother were together for about two or three years before they broke up. Because of his low earnings, Abraham had trouble paying his child support. He worked as a truck driver's assistant, basically meaning he would go with truck drivers on their routes and then help them unload and load the truck. Even though he had trouble meeting his financial obligation to Moses, he did see him regularly three, four times a week. And he really did love being a dad. And Abraham's life was pretty simple. He walked around a lot. He hung out at a local convenience store. He played pool. He spent time with his son. In 2005, his father died, and so Moses moved in with his mother. Particularly because of his low wages, he wasn't really capable of living and supporting himself on his own. In October 2006, when his son was five, Abraham was $8,000 in arrears with child support, and he ended up getting arrested for non-payment. He paid $200 towards the back amount, which was enough to get him out of jail. So this is where we're going into him playing the lottery. He is in serious debt with the child support. He paid enough to get out of jail, but he still has the balance left to pay to stay out of jail. So a month after that arrest, on November 15th, 2006, Abraham and a coworker named Michael Ford had to drive to Miami for work, which is a good three-and-a-half, four-hour trip. They stopped at a convenience store in Frostproof, Florida, which is the best name for a city in central Florida, by the way, Frostproof. And according to culturetrip.com, because of course I looked it up, The city's name really was a marketing scheme. It was meant to attract citrus farmers, promising no frosts. But that has literally nothing to do with the story. So, Abraham and Michael Ford stopped at this convenience store, and Abraham asked Michael to grab him two lotto tickets. He had $5 in his pocket, and he gave Michael $2 to go buy the tickets. And these are the type where you pick six numbers that get printed on your ticket, and then you could win all or part of the jackpot, depending on how many of the numbers you hit when they're announced later. So I think it's important to know this wasn't a scratch off where he knew he won right away. This is one where you had to wait for the drawing. The lottery pot was $31 million, and the odds of winning were around one in twenty. Three million. One of those two tickets was the winning ticket, swept the whole thing, all six numbers. And the way the lottery payout works is that you can get a certain amount per year until it's paid up, in this case $1 million a year, or you can take a lump sum. Both payments are subject to tax, and the lump sum has additional penalties or fees or whatever you want to call it, where you would actually get more money long term if you did the yearly payout. But a lot of people want all the money up front so then they can buy a bigger house and their cars outright with cash and also invest the money themselves, maybe make higher interest rate. And Abraham decided that he wanted the money up front. By the time first the taxes are taken out and then the fees are taken out, the payment he actually got was $12.7 million. So, yeah, it's not $31 million, but $12.7 million is a lot of money. And this really looked like the end of his financial struggles, which probably every lottery winner says. Since the only lottery winners who really make the news are the ones who go broke, You might think it happens a lot, and there's a number that goes around. I think it's something like 70% of lotto winners eventually declare bankruptcy, but that's pretty inflated. According to the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards, it's more like 30% go bankrupt generally within three to five years after their windfall. Now, that doesn't mean these people spent millions and millions of dollars on themselves in three to five years, a lot of the money gets lost when they give it away to friends and family or they invest in some harebrained scheme a friend comes to them with. And the first thing everyone should do if you ever come into a whole lot of money, and actually it's not such a bad idea if you don't have a whole lot of money, is to meet with a financial planner. But Abraham did not do that. Now the first thing he did do though he caught up on his child support and then set up a trust fund for his son. But then the people started showing up on his doorstep. They had hard luck stories, and Abraham was not the kind of guy who would say no easily. So almost immediately after getting his money, he ended up giving away about $1.75 million dollars, to various friends and family members, paying off their mortgages, buying them cars, giving them cash. And they weren't always close people. He paid off the mortgage of someone in need, who he barely knew, as in he didn't even know this guy's last name. But this behavior, this generosity was not new for Abraham. Back when he only had a couple bucks in his pocket, you know, the month before, If someone came up to him and asked him for money, he would give it over. He always figured the other person needed it. He'd figure out a way to get the money he needed, and he'd give away everything else. He was really just a genuinely generous person. Not everyone came to him asking for a straight-up handout. There were people who were asking for loans, and he was functioning almost as a bank. He was even issuing mortgages But he really didn't have the skills needed to keep track of all of this. He couldn't keep books on this, and then he was such a nice guy, he didn't want to collect on these loans when he knew the people he made them to would have to struggle to pay them back. In January 2007, we're talking two months after he won the lotto, he told the Sarasota Herald Tribune that he's been miserable ever since he won because of all the people who were hounding him. He told another friend that he didn't feel like all these people were really his friends. They seemed more interested in what he could give them or buy for them than they were in him. A solution to this, which would not be a bad idea, would be to let lotto winners hide their identities after they win. Then no one knows and no one can come knocking. But this solution gets in the way of transparency. People wanna know that lottery winners are actually people who played the lotto, the game's not rigged, everything's fair. And this transparency means people's names are being published. And in Florida, no one even has an option to not publish their name. Florida law mandates that this be public record. Abraham's name, the city he lived in, the date he won, and the amount he won were all public. The only information he could keep private was his actual street address and his phone number. But those are Both pretty easy to find when you know his name and the town he lives in. How many Abraham Shakespeare's are there in Central Florida? People found him very quickly. The same month he complained about how miserable he was to the paper, Abraham did what he probably should have done in the beginning, and he got some financial advice. He started an LLC called Shakespeare and Associates with the help of a local attorney. The purpose was so that this attorney could help Abraham get organized with his money, his books, all these loans he had out, and so forth. So that same month, Abraham bought a house. It was a new construction, 4,600 square feet. It had an enclosed pool, two two two-car garages, four bedrooms, and just everything. And it cost about $1.1 million. In March, he bought a brand new BMW for $100,000. Michael Ford, the co-worker he was with who physically bought the tickets, was watching this, and he's watching Abraham move into a big new house in a new neighborhood. He's driving up with this BMW, and he decided he wanted a cut of the money when Abraham was not willing to give him any, he sued, and he claimed that Abraham had stolen the tickets. Michael's story was that he bought both of the tickets for himself, not for Abraham. When he got back to his truck, he put the tickets in his wallet and then left his wallet in the truck while he made a delivery. Abraham, alone in the cab of the truck, stole the tickets right out of Michael's wallet. Michael's attorney brought up Abraham's criminal record, saying that he was a known thief. He pointed out that Abraham's tax return for the year before the lottery winnings was literally $32 total, $32 in taxable income. So how would Abraham have two bucks in his pocket for lottery tickets when he basically had no money at all. Spoiler alert, he was probably working under the table. So, okay, he didn't report all of his income, not that he didn't have income. But, you know, nice try there. Anyway, five co-workers testified for Abraham, saying that Michael told them himself that he had bought the tickets for Abraham. Now, Michael's attorney countered that some of these co-workers were recipients of Abraham's generosity. They hoped to keep being recipients, so they were incentivized to lie on the stand. Now, Abraham's attorney poked holes in Michael's story, including the motive. Why would Abraham steal two lottery tickets that were, on the day they were bought, just pieces of paper. Remember, these weren't scratch-off ones where you knew you had a winning ticket immediately. Abraham had no way to know one of these tickets would be worth millions, so where was the incentive to steal it? And the jury sided with Abraham, and Michael walked away with nothing. But this wouldn't be the end of Abraham's financial ups and downs. He ended up losing his LLC in September 2008 because the attorney helping him was pretty much just done with it. Abraham wasn't taking his advice. He was still making loans and gifts and not being as discerning about his spending as the attorney would have liked. Because here we are, not quite two years after Abraham won $12.7 million dollars. And he was down to about a million and a half in cash and another three million in non-liquid assets. So he had spent, given away, and loaned out $8 million. I'm going to put air quotes around loaned because it's questionable how many of these loans anyone intended on paying back to Abraham and it's about to get worse because now we have Dee, Dee Moore coming on the scene right after the LLC was dissolved. Not that Abraham took his lawyer's advice, but he was now losing that one person who stood between him and all the people asking him for money. This was awful timing because now here comes someone, 36-year-old Dee, Dee Moore, who can only be described a predator. Dee Dee Moore was at a conference for small businesses down in Kissimmee, Florida. She owned a medical nurse staffing company called American Medical Professionals, and she owned it for about four years at this point. While at this conference, she met a realtor named Barbara Jackson, and somehow it came up that Barbara was actually Abraham's realtor. And this seems to have perked up Dee Dee's ears. She approached Barbara and told her she was an author. She wanted to write a book about Abraham's life. That sounded to Barbara like something Abraham would be open to doing. So she agreed to set up a meeting for the three of them. And what Barbara didn't know at the time, that police noted later, is that Dee had no training, education, or experience with writing for publication. This appears to have just been a ruse to meet Abraham. And it worked. I mean, why would Barbara even question her? But a few weeks later, when they did meet with Abraham, Barbara was suspicious for a second. When she met Dee. At the conference, Dee Dee was in a wheelchair. She said it was the result of a car accident. So now, at this meeting, Dee Dee stepped out of her car wearing heels and strode right across that parking lot without even a hint of an issue. She told Barbara that she did something called scuba therapy after the conference and found miraculous healing. It is true that Dee had been in a car accident two years before she met Barbara. She was driving her Hummer when a little compact car veered into her lane. The cars collided, and I mean, it's really no contest between a Hummer and a compact car. Both occupants of the other car died in this accident. Dee suffered non-life-threatening injuries, and apparently, thanks to scuba therapy, made a full recovery. So the trio met for dinner on October 3rd, 2008, to discuss this book. That initial meeting led to more meetings, and now the meetings were just with Abraham and Dee. Instead of writing a book, though, Dee started rather quickly taking control of Abraham's financials. He had just lost his lawyer's help, and so did Didi, oh so graciously, offered to step into this role. And within about four months, she pretty much had control of everything he owned, four months from the day they met. So who in the world is this woman? She was born Doris Donegan on July twenty fifth, 1972, in Florida. She grew up in Riverview and Plant City. She was a happy and typical child, though her family says they didn't have a lot of money when she was growing up. As she got older, she became very ambitious, and her mother believes that her ambition and her pursuit for material things came out of feeling deprived as a child due to the family's limited finances. Dee graduated high school and became a certified nursing assistant, and this actually surprised me because Dee was so focused on material wealth. CNAs are generally, in my opinion, grossly underpaid for the work they do. My 20-year-old makes more money teaching parkour to 8-year-olds than most CNAs make keeping sick people clean, cared for, their vital signs monitored. Training to be a CNA can be done in a semester or less. So I get this isn't a college degree career, but my kid doesn't have a degree in parkour and still is making more money. Anyway, this isn't about how our economy compensates workers, except to say that Dee who wanted wealth, who wanted things, who wanted designer clothes and jewelry, she chose a position that was probably paying her 13 or $14 an hour. That certainly would not keep up with the lifestyle she wanted. In the early 1990s, Dee Dee married James Moore. They were married for about 17 years before they divorced and they had a son together. They were legally divorced in 2009, but they had been separated for a few years before that because in 2006, Dee Dee started dating Shar Krasniki, who was 23 at the time, and she was 34. Dee Dee's relationship with her ex husband, though, seemed to be fairly amicable, as we will see in part two. Didi Dee Dee grew from this ambitious child who was happy and just pretty much had a normal childhood to someone who lied a lot. When the extent of how much money she had taken control of from Abraham came out, it's reported her parents actually weren't that surprised because this seemed like something she would do. A bank employee who worked with Dee, Dee as she was getting all these assets into her name said that she was very charismatic and she acted like she was more important than she was. And you'll hear that repeated in interview after interview. She seemed like she had it all put together, but she also seemed kind of stuck up. Police were a little bit more direct, They called her a pathological liar. So what's the difference between a pathological liar and just a dishonest person? So a pathological liar lies so habitually that they'll do it even when there is no gain to them or anyone else from their lie. So a dishonest person will lie to get out of trouble, to charm someone else, or to get their way. A pathological liar will lie about anything. And so I'm interested with this idea of pathological liars because, I mean, I've met a few in my life, not very many, but a few. And it's never really made sense to me when the outcome is the same, whether you tell me the lie or you tell me the truth. What makes some people go for that lie? Most people would just tell the truth. There has been study into this and there are really no solid conclusions Pathological lying seems like it's almost a symptom more than an issue by itself. So it could come out of a personality disorder. But there's some interesting research out there showing that lying can literally just be a habit like anything else. So the person started lying, perhaps to brag about things to seem more accomplished than they were, or they lied to get out of trouble when they were a teenager, And it happened so frequently that lying became their go-to response even when there was no obvious benefit. Now we will see Dee Dee tell a lot of lies in this episode and next, but all those lies seem to have a purpose. She's trying to gain wealth. She's trying to cover up what she was doing, but I think she was so convincing in her lies Because she was so practiced at lying. She practiced being convincing. Because she lied about so many little things that didn't matter. When it came to telling big lies that did matter, she was ready for it. She'd been training her whole life for this. So one of the earliest instances of criminal activity we've seen with Dee Dee was embezzlement. In the early 1990s she worked for a CNA staffing agency called Arcadia Healthcare. She was working as a CNA for them where they would, you know, send her out on assignments. This lasted about a year before she moved to an office staff position. She did great in this job. She was in this position for about 7 to 8 months when she talked Arcadia into opening another branch in Plant City, where she lived, and she would be the office manager. She would run the office in Plant City. Because she had done so well, the company thought this was a great idea, totally in. And within a short time of running this branch, someone higher up in Arcadia noticed that Plant City had quite a bit more in expenses going out than seemed appropriate, largely in payroll. So an internal investigation showed that Dee had embezzled over $60,000 from the payroll in a pretty short amount of time. Arcadia decided to take legal action against Dee, but the plant branch caught fire before they could and the fire occurred in the office, and all of the paper files were lost. Reportedly, someone had moved all of the expensive office equipment to another area away from the fire, so it had been spared. Only the files were lost. The fire was investigated as a suspected arson, but there was never enough evidence to charge anyone, meaning Didi, with a crime. But the embezzlement case ended up being settled. Didi Dee Dee agreed to pay back 25000 in exchange for Arcadia not pressing charges. Arcadia likely figured they were more likely to get 25000 that Didi Dee Dee agreed to pay than if a court ordered restitution. And even if they got court ordered restitution, they'd spend years collecting it and would accumulate lawyers' fees in pursuing this. So this seemed like a decent enough resolution. Except Arcadia may have underestimated Dee because there's no clear record that this was ever paid back. And according to a former Arcadia coworker, Dee Dee apparently threatened Arcadia with bad press if they tried to collect. And this story was actually backed up with something Dee's parents said, giving it a bit more weight. According to this story, Dee Dee told Arcadia that she was going to the media with a story that Arcadia knowingly employed CNAs who had AIDS. She was banking on Arcadia not wanting the bad press. The public in the early 1990s, which is when she was working for Arcadia, was still fairly ignorant about HIV, AIDS, and transmission. The public that paid attention knew at this time that AIDS wasn't like a cold or a flu. Being around someone with the disease did not increase your risk of contracting it in any way. A lot of that thanks to the Ryan White story, which you can look up if you don't know about it. But there were plenty of people who still held these misconceptions about transmission. And even among the people who knew you couldn't get it just from incidental contact were still uncomfortable about someone in a medical environment having HIV or AIDS. So, this accusation, though false, could cause major PR issues for Arcadia. Since it appears Dee Dee did not pay the money back, it seems like Arcadia may have decided to cut their losses. There's also a former coworker from a cell phone company that Dee Dee had worked at at some point who also accused her of embezzling a large amount of money. Again, just the word of a coworker. Haley and I, we didn't find any evidence of criminal charges. Dee, Dee was arrested, though, in August 2001. She owed about $46,000 on a Lincoln Navigator SUV and was behind on her payments. The vehicle was at risk of being repossessed. So you or I may have thought we need to redo our budgets and figure out how to catch up on the payments. Or maybe we would accept that we couldn't actually afford a luxury SUV and let the bank have it back. But not Dee. If you guessed she hid the vehicle from the bank, you're right. And if you guessed she hid it from the bank and claimed it was stolen, you're doubly right. If you guessed that she staged her own kidnapping and rape and claimed the SUV was stolen by her attackers, then you've heard this story before because Dee Dee's the only person in the world who would come up with this plan. She actually enlisted two friends to help her. One friend took the navigator to a storage garage to park it and hide it another friend drove Dee Dee out to a small town outside of Lakeland, Florida. Dee Dee taped her own wrists together while her friend drove, and Dee Dee was watching out the window looking for a ditch. When she found the perfect ditch without witnesses around, she asked her friend to slow the car down. Then, with her wrists bound, she opened the car door and, I don't know, duck and rolled, she threw herself out of this slowly moving vehicle and into the ditch. Her friend drove off, probably wondering what life choices led him to that moment. Dee waited on the side of the road in the ditch until a passing driver spotted her and pulled over. She told the Good Samaritan that three Hispanic men had raped her, At gunpoint and left her in the ditch, taking off with her SUV. This story and the investigation into it made the news. The police were looking for the Lincoln Navigator. A man watching a news report about it called in a tip. He thought he saw the same Lincoln Navigator in a storage garage. Of course, the police go out there, they find the car. They start investigating how the car got into that garage, and this is where the story starts falling apart. Fast forward a bit, Dee was convicted of insurance fraud and filing a false police report. She was given one year of probation. In 2004, Dee Dee started her own nurse staffing company like Arcadia and called it American Medical Professionals. This was the company she was running when she met Abraham in the fall of 2008. When Dee Dee met Abraham, she presented herself as being very put together. She was wearing designer clothes, her hair was bleached. Blonde, clearly salon quality. She had jewelry on. She really gave the appearance of someone who had means and had it all together. When she and Abraham would go out, she would pick up the check for him. One time they went out and she sent a limo to his house to pick him up, all with her own money. And this was telling Abraham that Look, finally, here's someone who's not after his money, someone who's not expecting him to always pick up the tab. Abraham now has someone he trusts. And just to be clear, this doesn't seem to have ever been a romantic relationship, just a business. They would go out together, but they were friends, and they were working on business things together. Abraham was actually dating a woman named Centuria they had a baby boy a month after he met Dee Dee. Centuria has said that the relationship was very happy. They leaned on each other a lot. They enjoyed traveling together, and Abraham was overjoyed when their son was born. Dee Dee's role in Abraham's life was just to be a friend because he trusted her, and also because he trusted her manage his financials. They were making him miserable, so this was a huge relief for him to turn this over to someone else and to someone who would just take care of it. And Dee appeared to be taking care of it because she had no issues enforcing those loan repayments. All those people who weren't going to pay Abraham back because they knew he wasn't coming after them for it were suddenly getting knocks at the door and it would be Dee. And there she was with her hair done, makeup, jewelry, clothes, saying you need to pay back now. Suddenly, Abraham is getting some of his money back. He has money coming in after only having had it going out for two years. So again, this is just telling him Didi is the right person to trust, the person who could handle this. To understand the scope of this, let's walk through some of these transactions. Two months after meeting Dee Dee in December 2008, Abraham cashed out an annuity account that was worth about a quarter million dollars. The next month, that money showed up in the business account of Dee Dee's American medical professionals. She would claim this money was to pay Abraham's taxes, but there was no evidence any of this money went towards taxes. The majority of the money stayed in Dee's business account, which she also ran as her personal checking account, paying her own bills out of it. But not all the money stayed there. Some of the money went to her boyfriend, Shar, the man she had been dating for about two years at this point. In January 2009, Abraham signed a quick claim deed on his house, that big $1.1 million house he had bought, to Dee's company. Now, a quick claim deed, if you don't know, it's just a fast way to transfer properties. It doesn't require the title search or any of those usual things that can make a real estate deal take so long to close on. They're not generally done if you need really any assurances or any liability on the other party in the transaction. Quick claim deeds are often used between family members transferring properties. It's not usually used if you're talking about a stranger transaction. Dee had a few stories on this quit-claim deed. First, she said that she paid for the house. She paid $650,000 for it. Now, let's note that's actually just a bit more than half of what Abraham paid for the house two years before. So she was getting Quite the deal. Then she changed her story. She actually hadn't given him the money for the house, but that was because he had a drug problem and she was afraid he would squander the money. So she just held on to the money for him. Then the story changed again that Abraham didn't want to pay the gift tax he would be liable for for giving her a house with so much equity for a bit more than half its value that extra amount he would be liable to pay a gift tax on, which is fair. However, giving her the house makes him liable for even more gift tax, so that doesn't actually make any sense. She didn't pay for the house. That's the point, whatever her excuse. That same month with the house, he signed over two other properties in a similar fashion, and Dee Dee said, This was because he was leaving the country and he was offloading some of his properties so that he could do so more easily. In early April 2009, Didi made a videotape of Abraham talking about how he was tired of being asked for money. She asked if he wanted to go somewhere else to live, and he said yes. He wasn't even picky about where. She asked him if he would miss home. And he said he would, but life goes on. Honestly, Didi wasn't even the only person Abraham had told this to. When Abraham would complain about the stress of everyone wanting money from him, he would tell his friends and family that one day he was going to leave. He was going to take off on his own and they wouldn't hear from him again. So some other payment things. She had her company assume all of the mortgages that Abraham held on other properties. And so there were five properties. He loaned the funds for the friends and family to buy. The amount Dee on the books bought these mortgages for ended up being around five cents on the dollar. Dee then bought a new Lincoln MKS, and traded it to Abraham for his BMW. Now, the MKS was probably worth half what the BMW was worth. She then titled the BMW in her boyfriend, Char's name, and the Lincoln in the name of Abraham Shakespeare, LLC, which actually didn't exist for, like, another couple weeks. So she put it in the name of the LLC that she hadn't quite gotten around to forming Except for the scam aspect of this, this actually sounds like how I do business. It's a mess. In February, Abraham cashed out another annuities account. This one was worth about $1 million. The request was sent in by fax and it requested a check for the full amount to be sent to Abraham's address and made payable to him. Because it was payable to him, it's likely he knew about this, but it also was a fax, so we don't know. Dee, Dee could have sent it in and then forged his name on the check. Also, over these months, Dee, Dee was in his life. She was planting seeds of doubt in his mind about other people in his life, including Centoria. So the relationship hit the rocks. Everyone who knew Abraham and Centoria as a couple have said she was not with Abraham for his money. She was not a gold digger. They were together because they loved each other. Didi may have twisted that and made Abraham think Centuria was just one of these people who wanted his money. So now Abraham is leaning even more on Didi. She registered Abraham Shakespeare LLC in February. She listed herself as the agent and director she then set up a bank account for the LLC with her as the only signer. When the annuities check for that $1 million showed up, the very next day, it was deposited into the LLC's account. So this all looks like it's staying with Abraham, but Dee was the only signer on that account. Now, Abraham was at some point added to the account as a signer, my guess is it might have been a requirement for her to be able to deposit this check that was made out to Abraham. They needed him to be a signer. I don't know. But Dee showed up at the bank about a week later with meeting minutes, air quotes again, meeting minutes, from one of the LLC's alleged board meetings And this showed that they discussed how Abraham may have been engaged in criminal behavior and was facing criminal charges. So the bank, using these supposed meeting minutes as proof, agreed to remove Abraham from the LLC's bank account because of the criminal behavior suspicions. Now, the money did not stay in the LLC bank account for long. It went out to Char's account, Dee Dee's account. They bought another car, this time a Corvette for Char. More money went out in various directions. Dee Dee took trips. She took trips with her boyfriend. And by the end of February, that nearly $1.1 million that was in the LLC's account was down to something like. 44000 So from early October to mid-February, Abraham has lost legal ownership of pretty much all of his assets, both liquid and real estate. So how in the world did this happen? We know Abraham was vulnerable, but this is pretty ridiculous. We will later find out that Didi was telling Abraham he was going to be in a fight with Centuria over these assets. That Centuria was pretty much going to take him for everything he had, that she was going to file child support on him, and he was going to lose all of his money. And you have to remember that Abraham can't read any legal filings, even if Centuria filed for child support or asked for some type of, I mean, they weren't married, but you can sometimes get, it's not alimony the cutesy phrase for it is palimony, that she was going to file these things. Even if she did file them, he couldn't have read them. He can't Google his state's child support calculator to figure out how much he would actually have to pay. He just had Dee in his ear. So to protect his assets, he agreed to move them into different accounts. They were basically hiding them. So Didi's saying they're doing this because he's leaving the country and he needs to get out from under all of these assets. But it seems that what was actually happening is Didi was trying to help him hide the assets from Centuria. And Abraham was only doing it because he had been manipulated by Didi into thinking he was going to lose everything. Of course, he was losing everything, but to Didi. In early April 2009, Abraham signed over power of attorney, and he didn't sign it over to Dee Dee, but rather Judy Hagens, who was a lifelong friend of his. This signing was witnessed in person by a legit notary, so we know it happened, and we know Abraham did this freely. In that same time frame, Dee Dee bought another house; it cost about a quarter million. And her attorney, Howard Stitzel, moved his law office into that house. And then Dee Dee leased the property next door and put her office there. And Howard will come up again, so keep him in mind. He was the lawyer handling these property and asset transfers that Dee Dee was doing. Dee Dee then called Centoria at some point in April, probably mid April and told her that Abraham left his Ford 500 for her to use, and it was at Dee's house. So Dee, being the nice lady she clearly was, picked Centauri up and brought her to get the car. Now the car seemed like a nice enough gesture, but it wasn't quite enough because Abraham was not paying support for his son. He was not responding to Centoria. He wasn't letting her know where their relationship stood. So as much as she needed this car and used it to get around, she still had some other questions and some other things she wanted. But even as a gesture, this car didn't last. A month later, Judy, the friend who had power of attorney, at Dee Dee's request, went and took the vehicle back from Centoria, and then Dee Dee sold it. So, okay, there's a lot more. There's a lot more about cars and assets and financials. My amazing researcher, Haley, sent me all of it in chronological order on a timeline. She wanted to make sure that I saw all of what Dee was doing, and it's honestly unreal. This would be a three-parter if we went any deeper into this. Dee had to have been at the bank and car dealership every other week to make all of this happen, so much happened in such a short amount of time that I'm stunned no one else caught on. The only person who seems to have been catching on was Abraham. Judy, this lifelong friend, said that Abraham went to her in March 2009, so before he gave her power of attorney. He told her he had concerns about his money and about Dee. He realized he had barely met this woman, he got wrapped up in this whole thing, and now she has control of all of his assets. He doesn't even know how much money he has. Judy went to Dee to relay these concerns, and Dee's response was to tell Judy to keep Abraham away from the bank because some of the money wasn't there anymore some of the money is what she said. An account that had $1.1 million in it only had 40-something thousand left, and she's calling it some of the money. But this is when police believe things turned even uglier. Nobody is really hearing from Abraham after April. And in August 2009, he doesn't even show up to court. That lawyer Stitzel, he went to court on Abraham's behalf for a child support hearing. The excuse given in the court as to Abraham's absence and the lack of payments was that he was out of the country receiving treatments. In these months, people hadn't been hearing from Abraham. Didi was telling them that he had a drug problem and he was off doing that. And also he had AIDS. So this argument that he was out of the country seeking treatment would actually fit with other explanations Didi had been giving. And with Abraham out of the country, Didi gave Abraham's cousin Cedric a birthday card from Abraham to give to his mother. She also gave him $5,000 to deliver it and to say it was from Abraham. Cedric did what Didi asked, and yeah, he took the money, but it wasn't sitting right. Even if Abraham was elsewhere, he could have mailed a card to his mother. And the $5,000, why would Dee offer that much money? Why was it that important to her to get this card to Abraham's mother? So Cedric starts talking. He's asking family, he's asking friends over the next couple months saying, do you know where Abraham is? When did you talk to him last? When did you last see him? All he heard back was that some people had been getting texts here and there, and these texts were more than Abraham was capable of writing on his own. Whenever he wrote a text that was complete sentences, proper spelling, all of that, it usually means he dictated it to someone else who typed it into his phone for him. So wherever Abraham was in the great wide world, he was with someone, but as far as actually talking to Abraham, like on the phone or seeing him, Cedric couldn't find anyone who had any actual communication with Abraham since April 2009. In early November 2009, with Abraham missing seven months, Cedric finally reported it to police. He told the police about the lack of context about the text that couldn't have been from Abraham and about the birthday card Dee wanted him to deliver. And of course, the police wondered, why hasn't anyone contacted us in seven months if he's been missing that long? Cedric told the police that Abraham had talked about running off, and Abraham talked about leaving, and Dee said she talked to him, and Dee said this, and Dee said that. So with this missing persons report finally filed, the investigation... Started immediately, and they knew where they were going to start. The only person who claimed to talk to or see Abraham since April was Didi Dee Dee Moore, and that's where we're going to leave off this week. Next week we will talk about the investigation and what we find out about Didi Dee Dee, Abraham and what the heck happened here. Part two will be available on Patreon and Himalaya Plus in the next few days. Otherwise. You'll hear next week what happened to Abraham Shakespeare.